All right. Uh, one announcement relates to schedule coming up. There will be Bible class next Tuesday night. Now, that means that if uh, some people have beef on Christmas, those will be the ones that will be awake on Tuesday night. The ones that get the tryptophan from their turkey on Christmas Day, those are the ones who will be sleeping through class. So, But we will have class next uh, Tuesday, Tuesday night. And then the next week on uh, New Year's Day, that night, not New Year's Eve, but New Year's Day, that Tuesday night, just normal schedule, there will be Bible class. So... No changes coming up, and for those of you who didn't hear, I am not going to Kiev this January due to uh, all of the things that have gone on related to uh, my father's death and having to take care of all that was just too much, so I'm not going uh, anywhere uh, in terms of uh, Kiev or things like that in the foreseeable future. So uh, the other announcement uh, that we need to have out on the Internet and everybody needs to be aware of. It's the Chafer Conference. It's the first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in March. I think it's the 4th through the 6th. Is that right? 4th through the 6th. And this is going to be a, a really tremendous, tremendous conference. I think every year they get better, but this one's going to be on philosophy of ministry. And a lot of people ask the question, well, what's philosophy of ministry? And I'll try to put it in a nutshell. If you go to a, a thousand different Bible churches, especially if they're in Texas, you're going to find almost identical doctrinal statements. They all believe the same thing or say they believe the same thing. And especially if they're Bible churches that were founded in Texas in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they all have pretty much the same doctrinal statement because they just took the doctrinal statement of Dallas Theological Seminary and made it their doctrinal statement with a couple of modifications. And so... Uh, and that, and as Bible churches expanded, that's that's what they had. But if you go to any one of these today, from one to another, what they do on Sunday morning and what they do during the week are very different. Uh, some have a lot of contemporary singing in the morning uh, with their little uh, gospel quartet or uh, praise dancers or whatever. Others are more in the traditional historical evangelical vein. Uh, they do different things with regard to Sunday school. They have different things with regard to all kinds of activities. That comes out of your philosophy of ministry. And 99% of the time when churches split and people start, and, and the U's and the Rams in the congregation start butting heads and running away from each other, it has to do with a philosophy of ministry issue. And nobody ever writes these things down. Nobody ever gives a rationale for why they do what they do in their church or try to base it on any sort of biblical foundation. So while philosophy of ministry sounds to some people like it's fluff, it's extremely important that we learn to articulate why we do things the way we do things and what the biblical, uh, what the biblical parameters are. And, of course, one of the major issues facing Christianity today is in the realm of worship and music. And the, the our keynote speaker this year is going to be a professor from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Scott Annual, who has written a book called Worship and Song. I believe that's the name of it. And it is fabulous. I've been reading widely in this area for 30 years and find that... Um, that there was a, a, a tremendous amount of ignorance, but in the last 
uh, 10 or 15 years, some really good stuff has been written, and his is the best so far. Really, this guy's got a, got a master's in musicology, plus he's got a background in theology and a background in philosophy, and you can't you can't have an informed view on music if you don't control philosophy, theology, and music. And uh, unfortunately, there are too many people who and musicians who are wonderful musicians, but they've never studied musicology. They don't know the philosophical framework for music. I'm not talking about the words. I'm just talking about the music. And all they know is what's popular and what people like. And what people like is often dictated by their sin nature and a pagan worldview than a biblical worldview. And Scott Annual has done some tremendous work in this area, so he will be speaking all three nights and maybe one session during the day and one panel. So that's going to be worth the price of admission uh, in and of itself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in fellowship. Scripture says if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear. So the solution is simply admitting or acknowledging our sin to God the Father. At that instant, we're forgiven, cleansed, and restored to fellowship recover the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit so that we can move forward in our spiritual life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can come together this evening to learn from your word, to have God the Holy Spirit teach us from your word the key principles that you would have us to learn, that we might come to understand the things that happened in the first century with the planting and the expansion of the church and how God the Holy Spirit was the one who was working behind the scenes to bring about that tremendous expansion as the world was impacted by the fabulous good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray at this time of Christmas, when there's a lot of talk, a lot of things about the controversial aspects of Christmas, the challenge from secular government about observance of Christmas, many other issues come up. It gives us opportunities to turn the conversation to the real meaning of Christmas and to focus on uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his birth, and that is what Christmas is all about. Christmas really focuses on the cross. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to articulate our faith clearly in a gracious and kind manner and that we might uh, look for and wisely take advantage of opportunities 
to express the gospel to our family and friends and those around us. Father, we pray as we study this evening that we might be challenged by what we learn about the work of God the Holy Spirit as the church expanded in the early early decades of Christianity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We need to change that title slide. I didn't get that changed. But Acts, uh, Acts chapter 13. For an intro, I want to look at two passages. You can turn there if you want to or just make a note. But I just want to focus on two conversations that Jesus has with Peter. Two conversations that Jesus has with Peter. These are foundational conversations that Jesus has with Peter. In both places, he's talking to Peter. And this is crucial because Peter then becomes, after the ascension, Peter becomes the central leader of the the Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea. And until we get to where we are in Acts, Peter is still the primary primary leader. In Acts 13, there's a transition that takes place. Things begin to change. But when we come to Acts, there's another aspect of, the, of a study of Acts, a couple of things that we need to be aware of. First of all, a lot of people go to Acts to try to prove a lot of different things that they do in church. A lot of people go to Acts to try to prove a lot of things that go on in their Christian life. But Acts is not written to teach us like the epistles are written. It's mostly narrative. Now, there are some very important teaching principles in Acts, but it's narrative literature. It's history. And so historical literature, which tells us what happened, and telling us what happened, I'll use the term descriptive. It just describes what happened. Describing what happened is not prescribing what happened. Okay? Do you understand the difference? Saying this is what happened is not saying this is what should happen, this is what ought to happen, or this is the pattern for everything in the rest of the of the church age. Remember, the book of Acts is a transitional book. It is taking us from the age of Israel at the very beginning uh, to the church age, which starts in the second chapter on the day of Pentecost. In the first chapter, God the Holy Spirit has not come. God the Holy Spirit descends upon Christians in Acts chapter 2. There is no baptism uh, by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, no identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection in Acts chapter 1. There is no freedom from the tyranny of the sin nature in Acts chapter 1. But there is in Acts chapter 2 when the church begins. So there is a shift and what happens in the way God works uh, among his people. And so something new came into existence in Acts chapter 2, known as the church, the body of Christ, a new spiritual entity that replaced Israel. So in, in God's plan, temporarily, I'm not saying replacement theology, there is a uh, temporary cessation of God's primary work through Israel because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. But it's only a pause. God just sort of hits the pause button, and then there will be a restoration of God's primary work through Israel by uh, after the end of the church age when Christians are raptured 
uh, to be with the Lord in the air. Now, what happens in between is God is going to grow this entity. And the question is asked, how does the church grow? What do we do to make a church grow? And since the since the late 60s, there has been a unique phenomena that has come into evangelical Christianity known as the church growth movement. It has its historical roots in a seminary that was spinning wildly out of control in Southern California by the name of Fuller Theological uh, Seminary. And you had a number of key teachers there who had already departed from a belief in the infallible, inerrant Word of God and were basing more and more of their theology on experience. And they were heavily influenced by sociological studies. So they were building models for how you build a church on the basis of sociological studies rather than on the Word of God. Uh, But they didn't ignore the Word of God. They just tried to study the Word of God and interpret it in light of sociological studies. Now, there's another way of talking about this, and that is, do we interpret the Word of God on the basis of our experience? Or do we interpret our experience on the basis of the Word of God? Now, that is a crucial distinction because we have all kinds of experiences. And there, there are as many different experiences of different things as there are people in any, in any room. And you can't invalidate somebody's experience. Somebody says, well, this happened or that happened. I can't say, well, no, it didn't. What I can question is their interpretation of that experience. Because how we interpret that experience is determined by a lot of, a lot of our belief system and how we understand the truth of God's word. The evolutionary scientist has one experience when he goes out into the, uh, goes out into the field and is studying the fossils in a, in a fossil layer. And he sees that certain fossils tend to group in certain kinds of rock. And so on the basis of his experience, he interprets that, and then he uses that to interpret the Bible and comes up with a different scenario for history than what the Bible says. He's interpreting the Bible on the basis of his experience rather than his experience on the basis of the Bible. You have various mystics down through the ages, whether we're talking about ancient, uh, the ancient pathways, they call it, of the uh, medieval mystics, especially most of all of whom were Roman Catholic mystics, they were interpreting these experiences they had with something they called God uh, as something like what was going on in the Old Testament. They're using their experience to interpret the Bible rather than letting the Bible interpret their experience. So we've got this problem that came out of the 19th century, as I've explained many, many times, where you have several great evil, evil ideas that generated in the 19th century. Darwinistic thinking in terms of science. You had the rise of sociology through the thinking of Herbert Spencer and others. You had the rise of psychology via uh, um uh, so, I mean, uh, psychology via Freud and the rise of, of Marxism, uh, Marxism, communism, 
through Karl Marx. And these men have shaped where we are today. They have, their thinking has shaped the culture today. And what happens is today you have many theologians who will interpret the Bible on a Marxist, as a Marxist basis. That's how you get liberation theology and black liberation theology. They're basically taking their, uh, their ideas of, of economics and then imposing that on the scripture rather than letting the Bible teach economic principles and, and, and then letting those principles interpret the Bible. You have the same thing in psychology where uh, people's problems are defined in terms of uh, various psychological models, and there's over 300 different secular psychological models of how the human being is made up, and all those are based on an ex- experiences that uh, various psychologists have in combination with sociology. And this impacted uh, the, the, the science, social science, they claim, of church growth, that we can come up with laws and patterns for how to build a church. And indeed, it, it seems to work. See, Satan doesn't maximize in counterfeits that fail. There's no success in that. He maximizes in counterfeits that that work and that have as close an approximation to biblical Christianity as possible. But it's still not biblical Christianity. It's a reliance on methodology and technique rather than on God the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. And it's really tough to rely exclusively on God's methodology, on the Holy Spirit and on truth, because a lot of times people just reject truth. They reject truth and they reject God more than they're going to get excited about it. And we don't like that. We like to be popular. We like to be accepted. We like to feel like people really respond to our message. Jesus lays down a couple of principles. In Matthew 16, he's talking to Peter. A lot of things we could say about the passage, and I'm not going to uh, focus on that. He asks the disciples, uh, who, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet. And he says to them in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, Hamashiach, the son of the living God. Peter nails it. He knows exactly who Jesus Christ is. And then Jesus responds, praising him for his answer. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. See, this isn't the result of finite human intelligence, but my father who is in heaven. See, in all these isms that I've talked about, uh, sociology, Marxism, psychology, all these different ologies and isms, all are based on empiricism, and it excludes revelation as the starting point. But what Jesus is showing here is that there are some things you can learn, and you can learn a lot through empiricism and rationalism, but you can't learn some things apart from divine revelation. Just think about Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, any tree. And they could have learned that empirically. But there's one thing they couldn't learn empirically, and that was that they weren't supposed to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was that piece of information that could only be known by God telling them that helped, that, that defined what was going on in the garden. 
So, so empiricism is great to a point, rationalism is great to a point, but without God giving us the key inf- pieces of information through revelation, uh, we really can't put the data together correctly. We might come close in some areas, but it really doesn't work. So Jesus is saying the key issue is that you don't really know who Jesus is apart from God's revelation. So God has revealed that to to, uh, to Simon, to Peter, and there are different ways God reveals it. He reveals it through his word. He reveals it through the preaching of the word. This is not talking about a, a direct uh, revelation of God like Saul of Tarsus had on the road to Damascus. That's not normative. That's abnormal. It happened once in history. I can't think of another example. Only once. That's not the normative pattern. So Jesus then says to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, which is a play on words for the Greek word uh, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, which is Petros is a smaller rock, Petra is a larger rock. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, the thing I want to focus on is Jesus says, I'm going to build a church. He doesn't say, Peter, you're going to build a church. He said, I'm going to build the church. And this is a future active indicative of the Greek verb oikotomeo, from oikos, meaning a house or building, and domeo, which indicates building or construction. The fact that it's a future tense indicates that Jesus has not yet begun the process. The building of the church would take place in the future. And it is a a first-person singular, meaning Jesus is saying he's the one who's going to do it. It's an active voice verb, meaning that Jesus performs the action of the verb. He builds the church. Now, he has another conversation with Peter after the resurrection. And this is after Peter has denied the Lord. And now Peter comes down. I mean, the Lord comes, and he's going to uh, talk to the disciples. They've been out fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus uh, called to them, and they hadn't had any luck. So uh, Jesus told them where to throw out their nets. They threw out their nets, and there was too many fish there for them to haul into the boat. And at this point, they recognize who the Lord is. And then they come on the shore, and they have breakfast. And after breakfast, Jesus again has a conversation with Peter. And he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, there's a play on words with love. There's a play on words with lambs. There's a play on words with feed. Uh, and uh, there's a play on words uh, for, for, for feeding and tending. So there's all these uh, synonyms here, and we make a lot of points about that, but I, I'm not going to go off and talk about those things. I just want to talk about the command that Jesus gives to Peter. Remember in, in Matthew, Jesus said, I will build my church. Now what does he say to Peter? He says to him, feed my lambs. In verse 15, three times he says this. He uses two different verbs. In verse 16, he uses it's translated, tend my sheep. It's actually the word I have on the right, poimino, which is, uh, which is the verb form for what a literal shepherd does. So it's used metaphorically here. It's not talking about being a literal shepherd out with literal sheep, but it is taking that imagery and applying it to this circumstance. So what we have here with the word poimino, or shepherd my sheep, 
uh, feeding my sheep, tending my sheep, is borrowing a metaphor. It's not literal. In verse 15 and in verse uh, verse 17, Jesus says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, and he uses the word that's on the left, bosco. Bosco is a word that has the literal meaning of feeding, uh, nourishing, providing nourishment for someone. So you have uh, the same verb used twice. It's a literal verb with a literal meaning of feeding. Now, I'm making a point here because this is uh, missed by a lot of people. It's missed in translation. A general rule, if you're trying to figure out what in the world's going on here and why is Jesus going back and forth between these words, is that a metaphorical figure of speech is used to depict the role of the leader of a congregation. He is a pastor. Basically, that is a, that is a translation of the word meaning to shepherd. It's the noun form of poimino, poimane. And it means to, to shepherd. Now, what does it mean to shepherd? That's obviously a figurative speech because I'm not a literal shepherd and y'all are nice, but you're not a bunch of woolies. You don't look like cute little sheep. You don't even look like dirty little sheep. So this is a figure of speech. Now, the way language works is we come to understand a figure of speech when it's used in a synonymous way with more literal language. And the literal language defines the figurative language. So when we use an idiom, when you read a Shakespearean sonnet, when you read uh, any, any psalm where figures of speech are used, you look at the synonymous parallelism in the verse, and that gives you a more concrete term that helps you narrow the focus and understand the, the, the function of the of the figure of speech of the of the metaphor, and so the point of this is is that shepherding is defined for us here. If I go out to any number of churches and any number of pastors and I say, "Tell me what it means to be a shepherd," you get all kinds of ideas. But Jesus narrows the meaning of shepherd by using the synonym bosque. Bosco here. What does Bosco mean? It means to feed. It means to provide nourishment. It doesn't mean all these other things that a shepherd can do, uh, a li- what a literal shepherd can do. It narrows it by saying, you may list 50 things that a literal shepherd does to sheep, but there's only one that applies in this, in this figure of speech. There's only one part of this analogy that I'm talking about, and that is the role that the shepherd has in taking the sheep to pasture where there's good grass and keeping them away from the weeds and the poisonous grass and the bad water and making sure they're nourished and they're healthy. That's the role of the pastor. So Jesus says, your role, Peter, as an apostle, which is a a, a model for a pastoral role, apostles traveled, they were uh, uh they ministered to the entire body of Christ. They didn't just focus on one congregation, but what they did was they pastored multiple congregations and they focused on feeding, nourishing the sheep by teaching them the word. That's the nourishment. And by training the leaders to do that. 
And we're going to see that depicted for us in the rest of the book of Acts. Acts shows us how Paul understood the role, uh, the pastoral role of an apostle. It involved evangelism. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. You might have the gift of pastor teacher, but that doesn't mean you don't do the work of an evangelist. And that isn't restricted to just giving the gospel, but it's part of training people to be able to accurately uh, give the gospel. So the point here that I want to make is that Jesus says, I will build my church. You feed the sheep. Jesus doesn't say, you build a church and figure out somebody else who's going to feed them. And that's the model that you have in so many congregations today is the pastor today is viewed as the CEO. He's viewed as the uh, promoter of the church. He's viewed as the, uh, as the one who manages and administers everything. And then they have small groups or they have Sunday school classes or things like that. And then you have... Uh, layman amateurs who don't have much training at all, where, where most of the teaching takes place within the, within the, the, these different small groups. And the pastor's the encourager in chief. And he's the motivator in chief. And so that's the focus on what the, the pastor does. And that, that's not the Bible at all. The Bible says it's the pastor who's supposed to feed the sheep. And Jesus builds the church. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts, is it is the Holy Spirit who is expanding the church over and over again. The emphasis that I want you to watch as we go through this is that Peter and Paul do not rely on techniques. They don't rely on uh, various other uh, uh, methodologies in order to establish the church. What do they do? They teach the word, they feed the sheep, and the people respond, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who builds the church. So what I'm doing tonight is simply giving us a little review of where we've been and then a preview of what we're going to see in the second half of the book. So this is just a, a flyover again of the book of uh, a book of Acts. So this is a chart that I've been uh, uh, working on. Uh, we've used it in the past, and I've changed up my structure, how I structured um, structured Acts. I did break it when we first started. I broke it at Acts nine with the with the salvation of Saul. That's as, as the break between uh, the Jewish focus and the Gentile focus. But I'm changing that as I've gotten into the book and studied more. And that's what happens as you go through a book. You're constantly refining your understanding of it as you, as you learn, learn the book and learn its structure. There's a, it starts with a witness in Jerusalem because in Acts 1-8, Jesus said, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then secondly in Judea and Samaria, and then third to the uttermost part of the world. So this is the breakdown. There's a, the, the, the focus is on Jerusalem from chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 7, at which time a uh, uh, Stephen is going to be brought on trial. He's going to preach against the, the Sanhedrin, and then they're going to take him out and stone him. A persecution arose, and 
They, everybody but the apostles, all the Christians but the apostles are pushed out of Jerusalem. So from 6, 8 to 1225, you have the expansion of the church in Judea and Samaria, which includes taking the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, to the um, uh, Samaritans, and to uh, the Gentiles, Cornelius uh, the centurion in Caesarea. And then at the end of 1225, an, the, another persecution is going to arise. Uh, it's instigated by uh, King Herod Agrippa I. And remember, he is so arrogant, and he dresses up in his costume, so he uh, is going to reflect all of the brilliant uh, uh, morning light as he speaks in the morning to the crowds, as he's in the theater there at Caesarea by the sea facing east, so the sun comes up behind him and would reflect off of his clothing. And people said, oh, he's, a, he's the son of a god. And uh, he's filled with pride, and God strikes him dead, and he's, his bowels are eaten out with worms. Uh, but before he did that, he had caused uh, James to be uh, James, the brother of John, to be arrested and martyred, and he had arrested Peter. And we see that episode where Peter is prayed for by the church, and then God miraculously released him. So that's the expansion in six eight through the end of chapter twelve, and then in chapter thirteen we see this new expansion uh, begin. Uh, through through the church at Antioch. There's a major shift that takes place up because up through the end of chapter 12, the focus has been on the church at Jerusalem. And now starting with uh, chapter 13, the focus goes to the church in Antioch of Syria. The uh, basic outline that we had, this is what I just covered. Uh, the first part, through the 6-7 God, through the Holy Spirit, authenticates, empowers, and directs the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. Then from 6-8 through 12-25, God expands the witness of the church into Judea and Samaria. And in the third section of the book, which we're about to start, God expands the church to the end of the earth. Notice, it is God doing all the action. It's not, I didn't put one of the human leaders there because they are simply being empowered and directed by God. God's the one who builds his church. God's the one who expands the church. God's the one who provides the power and not mankind. It's not a human effort. Uh, we broke that further in different uh, outlines. I changed up this second outline by focusing on um, God allows persecution to drive the church out of Jerusalem in Acts, from Acts 6, 8 to 8, 3. Then, secondly, God sent Philip to the Samaritans to demonstrate the, the unity of their salvation with the, what had taken place in Jerusalem because it's all done under the power, under the hands, the guidance of Peter and John, the apostles. Third, in Acts 9, God saves Saul, which prepares the way for the salvation of the Gentiles in the second half of the book. Then fourth, God directed Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles who become equal members in the body of Christ. That's Acts chapter 10 through Acts chapter 11. And then in Acts chapter 12, God allows persecution to develop under Herod Agrippa I and disciplines him through death and then moves Paul and Barnabas out of Jerusalem to Antioch in the north, which becomes the new center for the expansion of Christianity. Now, as we go through this book, Acts. We have to be oriented to maps. I know some people are not very good when it comes to maps. Other people love maps, but we always have to orient to maps. This is a map of Israel where we have Judea in the south, the lower circle, uh, Samaria in the north. Jerusalem is located here. 
uh, in the northern part of uh, Judea. And then Galilee is to the far north. So we have Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, and some area in the, in the center. Up to the north here, uh, outside, this little, outside of this line, you have Syria. Today, this is modern Lebanon. And over here, you have Syria. A lot of discussion on the news as to what's going on in Syria. Uh, off the map to the north, we'll look at another map to spot it in a minute, is Antioch of Syria. And so this shifting focus goes from a Jewish area to a Gentile area, which tells us that a bit major transitions taking place now from a Jewish focus to a Gentile focus, from Jewish geography to Gentile geography. And that's extremely important for understanding what's going on in this transition period. So in the second half of the book now, all that's been review, in the second half of the book from chapter 13 through the end of the book in chapter 28, we're going to see two things. God expands the church into Asia Minor, and then into uh, into Greece, into Europe. And uh, this is covered in the first two, what we call missionary journeys of Paul, that are covered in chapter 12, verse 25, through 18.22. The first journey is going to be rather short, and then he's going to return, give a report to the church, then he's going to go back and revisit some of those churches, and then go on, end up going into uh, into Greece, then back to Ephesus, that was the second missionary journey, and then a third missionary journey. That's the second part. I took When I redid it, that should be A and B, not A and C. God expands the church to Rome. So this involves Paul third, Paul's third missionary journey, and then he goes back to Jerusalem, gets arrested, eventually transported by, by ship to Rome, and he's incarcerated there for a couple of years. He's released. We don't know where he goes from there. We know what he wanted to do. He wanted to go to Spain and to Gaul. There's some church tradition that he even made it to Britain. Uh, we don't know for sure. He came back. We do know that he went to the northern part of Italy and came across what today would be Yugosla- what would have been Yugoslavia, uh, Serbia, that area, and came down into Greece through Macedonia in the north. And then he's arrested again, taken back to Rome, uh, where he's martyred. But the book ends, Acts ends, while he's still a prisoner in Rome in the first imprisonment. So there's nothing that really tells us what happens what happens after that. Here's a, a map, a good map of the uh, areas of the first and second missionary journeys. Here's the area of the Middle East, here on the right, colored in yellow, uh, this lower area down here, Caesarea Maritima here, this is Judea and Galilee here. Up to the north, This most of this area in yellow is Syria. Antioch of Syria is all the way up here to the north. This is in an area, I believe, today that is under the control of the Alawites. Hassad uh, is an Alawite. An Alawite was a sect that split off from Islam about a thousand years ago, and the Alawites hate the hate the Muslims, and the Muslims hate them. There's a lot of warfare there. That's part of the problem of what's going on in Syria, is that the Alawites are a minority community in Syria, and so if they lose power, then the Sunnis and the Muslims that take over will 
will instigate a genocide against him. This is why Assad's not going to go quietly into that good night, because if he drops out, some other Alawite is going to take his place because they see it as a tribal uh, tribal uh, self-defense, self-preservation against the rest of, of Syria. Syria is just an artificial country cobbled together in the 1930s, and in fact, initially, the Alawite area had its own currency, its own post office, and was a separate entity. But that's uh, all of that develops much later, but that's the area of Antioch. This is the birth of the expansion of, uh, of Gentile Christianity. And so it is from the church at Antioch that Paul will go on his first missionary journey, indicated by this blue line. This is covered in uh, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter uh, 14, uh, before he returns at the end of chapter 14, he goes to Cyprus with uh, Barnabas and John Mark. Then John Mark left them, and uh, John, uh, Paul and Barnabas went on up here to um, Pamphylia, to Perga, and then north to another Antioch called Pisidian Antioch in uh, this particular region of Pisidia, and then they went to Derby, and then he returned back through these towns of Lystra and Iconium uh, and retraced his steps, and then they returned uh, home to the church in Antioch. When he goes out on his second missionary journey, he will go through his hometown of Tarsus here in Cilicia. Then he will revisit the churches in Derby, Iconium, and uh, Antioch and pick up uh, a young man by the name of Timothy, who will begin to travel with him. And then he will go into uh, Asia. Notice the route they've drawn on this map is he doesn't go into Asia because God the Holy Spirit prevents him. Now, how did God the Holy Spirit prevent him? Now, if you come from a modern charismatic, you're going to have some sort of internal God spoke to them. Well, that may be, but he's an apostle. That's normal for an apostle. It's not normal for anybody else. It's not a pattern. But I think he probably, God, we don't know. It just says the Holy Spirit prevented him. We don't know if that was through circumstances. He, uh, he has, or whether it's through a, a New Testament, uh, someone with him who's got the New Testament gift of prophecy who tells him. Uh, we don't know. Any, if you think you know, you're wrong. You're just making it up. It's amazing how many people read into it whatever their background is. But it doesn't tell us, so we don't speculate. So he goes to up here, and he comes up to Troas, and there he has a vision of someone in Macedonia calling for him to come over and to bring them the gospel. So he crosses over, and this is when the gospel first goes to Europe, and he goes to Macedonia, or as it is pronounced in, in Greek, Macedonia, and he goes to Philippi, and he goes to Amphipolis, and to Thessaloniki, and to uh, Varia. That's how the Greeks pronounce this. You know, Greek is interesting because you probably heard one form of Greek pronunciation, uh, which is a form similar to a form I use, which is uh, called Erasmian Greek. Erasmian was a great uh, early 16th century humanist scholar from Holland. He was an opponent during the time of the Reformation of Martin Luther. But uh, as, as Koine Greek was really becoming known, Erasmus, who had never in his life heard a native Greek speaker, just generated out of his own imagination 
a way of pronouncing Greek. Just pure imagination made it up. Every Greek grammar since the 16th century has established that form of pronunciation. Now, when you get into recent times, there's been a lot of dis- lot of study on this, and you start looking at how modern Greeks pronounce things, it's not anything like uh, Erasmian pronunciation. But then when you study a lot of textual problems, and remember in copying the transcripts, you would have somebody reading the text out loud, and so people are hearing certain vowel sounds. Now, they don't confuse certain vowel sounds ever. And other vowel sounds they would confuse and create a textual problem. So uh, we know that certain sounds, like diphthongs, like a combination E-I or A-I, often sounded like an eta because often a transcriber would write down an eta instead of the diphthong. So we know that they were similarly pronounced. That's not how Erasmus had it. Okay? So Erasmus just made it all up. So anybody who pronounces anything like I do on the Erasmian pronunciation doesn't have anything to do with how it was originally sounded. It was just made up. Just thought I would add that. Uh, I've been trying to adapt myself more and more to a uh, a more biblically, a more correct uh, pronunciation, so you just have to bear with me. It'll sound strange at places. But uh, modern Greek pronounces it Philippi and Thessalonica and Varia. The B is a soft B like a V. And then down to, uh, it goes down to Athens. The green area here is Greece proper, otherwise known at that time as Achaia. And in the north, it's Macedonia or Macedonia. Uh, Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, uh, organized the armies of Macedon in the uh, early uh, 4th century B.C., and then they conquered, went out and conquered the world. He came back to Ephesus, spends a couple of years in Ephesus, retraces those steps in his third missionary journey, and goes to uh, back to Jerusalem. So this is his third missionary journey, goes back to Antioch, comes back up, retraces, revisits all those churches, comes back. Now, here's an easy thing to remember. Paul had basically four journeys. We speak of them as three missionary journeys and his trip to Rome. Now, this is how you remember what Paul wrote on each journey. On the first journey, on the first journey, or after the first journey, he wrote how many books? One. After the second journey, he wrote how many books? Two. After the third journey, he wrote how many books? Three. Very good. On the fourth trip, he wrote how many books? Four. See how easy it is? Anybody can learn that. So the first first trip, he writes, after the first trip, he wrote Galatians. After the second trip, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. See, that's real easy because they're both to the same people. Second trip, First and Second Thessalonians. Third trip, he writes uh, Romans, and once again, two books to the same place: First and Second Corinthians. On the uh, trip to Rome, while he's in prison in Rome, he wrote four books called the Prison Epistles: Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. And then. Uh, after that first imprisonment, he wrote First Timothy and Titus, and then during his last imprisonment, he wrote Second Timothy. 
That's it. Those are all the polynomials. See how easy it is? First, first visit, one book. Second, I mean, first trip, one book. Second trip, two books. Third trip, three books. Fourth trip. You just have to be able to count to four, and you can do it. And you're all of a sudden, you know, more than most Bible college students, most pastors, and and um, nearly everybody who teaches Sunday school. So on the fourth trip, Paul goes to Rome via ship. There's a shipwreck on on Malta. So we'll learn about. Uh, the islands in the Med, you have Crete and you have, I mean, uh, Cyprus here. That's the first missionary journey. Then he goes by uh, Crete, second missionary journey. This is also the basis for uh, uh, where Titus is going to be pastoring in the epistle to Titus. And then the shipwreck in Malta. And then he goes up through uh, Sicily and on up to Rome in Italy. So we learn all of this uh, geography. Today, this is all Turkey modern turkey and uh, which is named not for the uh not for the bird but for the turks that came out of the uh came out of central asia and invaded and then adopted islam uh over here you have greece to the north uh macedonia macedonia thrace over here and then this is the area of bosnia bulgaria serbia these areas, Paul will circle the Adriatic Sea probably after his uh, first first imprisonment. So that gives us a little bit of a framework there, and uh, just to come to understand the scope of the Roman uh, Roman Empire. This line will divide what later becomes uh, Eastern Empire from the Western Empire. Over here we have Spain or Hispania. Uh, very likely that Paul went there, but this is all part of related to Gaul, Gaul, and you have Gallia here, and so as Paul went here, he may have traveled up this way and as far as uh, Britannia, but that is speculation, although there's some tradition uh, to support that. As we go through, we're going to, one of the most important parts, a lot, lot of what we see from chapter 13 through chapter 8 is just historical narrative telling us what happened, what Paul did, what was said, who did what to whom, tracing out as God the Holy Spirit expands the church. But one of the interesting things that we ha- will have to spend some time on is the discourses of Paul. When Paul teaches or Paul talks, now, it's interesting as we get into this, you'll read, especially in the New King James Version, frequently it uses the term of uh, preaching or making proclamation, but there are different words that are used. The major word that's translated preach is really the Greek word evangelizo, which means to proclaim the good news, to give the gospel, where we get our word evangelism. Another word that is used is katangelo, which means to proclaim something from angelo, angelo to an angel, uh, angelos the angel, does angelizo is to announce, katangelizo is to proclaim, uh, to announce something. And so this is related to, to the gospel presentation. It's an announcement of something. Uh, more, and, and this relates also to the word kerugma, which is also translated preached and is often related to the gospel. The gospel is not taught. The gospel is proclaimed. Isn't that interesting? We, ought to th- we need to think that through because in our modern world today, you go to a lot of churches and they preach. 
Now, preach isn't what Paul emphasizes in the epistles and the, uh, the pastoral epistles. He emphasizes teaching the word, teaching the household of God, giving them instruction so they learn the content of the scriptures and they learn the faith. Preaching is related to giving the gospel. Preaching is related to proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ has come to to uh, uh, to pay for your sins. So preaching is related to a particular content. Teaching is related to a particular content. What we've done in the perversion of modern American Christianity is we've made preaching and evangelism related to a rhetorical style. See, now, now, then what happens what, when you redefine biblical words to mean something they don't mean in the Bible, then when people go back and read it in the Bible, they're all confused. And they think preaching is kind of like what Billy Graham does, or preaching is what you hear from some of the televangelists when they get all uh, worked up on uh, their, their various shows. That's preaching, and we need more preaching and emphasizing sin and hell and damnation and everything else. But that's not what the Bible means by preaching. So we'll see this, and I'll point this out as we go through this. So he goes to the first place that you really have a discourse is in, when he goes to Antioch of Pisidia. We don't hear a lot about, we see a lot about what he does in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Cyprus, but he doesn't really preach there. He deals with this Elymas the magician. And then when they go to the mainland, he goes up to Antioch of Pisidia, and from Acts 13, 16 to 41, he's preach, he is preaching the gospel to Jews in a synagogue. And it's going to be very instructive to see how he approaches it because of the nature of his Jewish audience. And then just the next chapter, when he goes to a couple of towns later and he's in Lystra, he's going to be addressing a Gentile audience that doesn't have any Old Testament background and he approaches them from a totally different perspective. So you have to know who you're talking to. You have to know your audience. And then in um, Acts chapter 17, he again is addressing a, a very well-educated pagan audience in Athens at the foot of the uh, uh, Acropolis at the, at, um, at the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And so there's a debate there, and uh, then... And that's to Gentiles. And then in Ephesus, in Acts, um, uh, Acts 19:35 to 41, there's another uh, presentation there to the rioting crowds that are uh, have been uh, stirred up by various lies against Paul. Then he goes to Jerusalem at the after the third missionary journey. We have him addressing Jews in Acts 22:1 to 21, addressing the Sanhedrin in Acts 23:1 through 6, which I think is just a masterful a way to turn your enemy against themselves because he, he he's dealing with the Sanhedrin that's composed of, of Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees didn't believe in the res, uh, in bodily resurrection at all. Pharisees did, and he just stood up and said, I'm on trial for the resurrection, uh, for the belief in the resurrection from the dead. And that got the Pharisees and Sadducees fighting each other, and that was it. He kind of scoots out the door. So uh, it's a great little, great little uh, strategy that he had there to uh, divert the attention away from himself. Uh, then, uh, while he's under arrest, he deals with two different uh, uh, Roman governors, Felix, and then later Festus, and the and uh, Herod Agrippa the the second, who's the who's the king at that time. And so this is primarily Jewish audiences 
uh, that he is that he's dealing with, and then he goes to Rome, and in Acts 28, a delegation of Jews from the synagogue in Rome come to uh, ask him to tell him what he's teaching. So we see different audiences and different approaches, and we can learn a lot from that in how we uh, address different things in terms of different people and their background. And so there's a lot of lot of interesting things that are going on here, and we get a really clear understanding of the gospel uh, in its m- most simple expression in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, to its more robust expressions and explanations in other of these passages. So that's our flyover for the rest of the book, the three missionary journeys and then the fourth journey to Rome, ending with Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Who expands the church, though? It is the Holy Spirit that is working behind the scenes. We see a picture of this in the last verse of chapter 12. Uh, After Barnabas and Saul had brought financial aid to the church in Jerusalem because they were going through a famine, uh, this is in the spring of 48. This is now 15 years after the crucifixion. Uh, when they had fulfilled their ministry in Jerusalem, they took with them, they returned to Antioch, taking with him John, whose surname was Mark. And then what we see in the next chapter is how the church has expanded in this n- northern town uh, of Antioch. So we read as we go through um, Acts chapter 12, we see the expansion of the church, and it's God the Holy Spirit doing the work. It's not technique. It's not methodology. It is content because it's a spiritual entity. God builds his church. He doesn't do it man's way. He does it through the teaching of the word that and, the, and how the Holy Spirit uses that. So we'll come back next time, next Sunday, next Tuesday night rather, Christmas night, and we will start into Acts 13 and the first missionary journey. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, be reminded that it's not about how we do things. It's about trusting you. It's your church. You'll build it. We are to, as pastors, feed the sheep, as churches, to focus on feeding the sheep and to do everything we can to uh, proclaim the truth of your word and to teach people how to live and think biblically, and that God the Holy Spirit is the one who builds the church. And we are to trust in you and just relax in your provision and your oversight, knowing that there will, just as we see in Acts, always be opposition and hostility, but that you are the one who oversees the entire process. Father, may we be strengthened and encouraged in this study. In Christ's name, amen.